Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So he don't got no good news for me Even though I'm seeing bodies in the street like autumn leaves He say all I know is Jesus, man, is all I know to preach I guess Jesus doesn't care if I get killed by the police I guess Jesus doesn't care if I get killed by the police I guess Jesus doesn't care if I get killed by the police I guess Jesus doesn't Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga In this episode, I talk with Andre Henry Andre is an award-winning musician, writer, and activist He's also the author of the recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Andre Henry. You can get connected with Andre and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. That you know, because what I'm wearing has some bearing on the state of my soul. But does he care about the neighborhood? Just tell me, is he looking? Are you saying that the Savior couldn't save me? Because my hoodie, come on. Today we have Andre Henry with me. And Andre, uh, we've known each other for a few years, and uh, I'm just so grateful to know you. And I remember when we first chatted years yeah. ago, you were talking about like, hey, I'm writing this book. And I was so excited. And I don't know if like the book you were talking about back then was this book that has now come out. But uh, either way, I sort of like I knew you prior to this actually being out. And so now to know that this book is out in the world and people are reading it and loving it, it's just like it warms my heart that I sort of in some way, shape or form kind of saw that whole process happen. So uh, with that said, who is Andre Henry to Andre Henry? Yeah, you know, I had so much trouble with this question the first time because I wasn't expecting it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, to me, you know, I'm an artist, you know, and I have a deep passion for racial justice. To a lot of other people, I'm a writer, singer, songwriter, and activist. That that was so succinct. Like, you were practicing that. Like... You, it's like you woke up and you were looking in the mirror and you're like, okay, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. And that's <laughs> Not that much practice, but I've had a lot of practice lately. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, you wrote this incredible book recently called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow about fighting for black lives. I, I just love it. Again, like this was a book that in some way, shape or form, I sort of saw or like we talked about before it actually existed in the world. And so I'm just so excited to chat more about that. With that said, this is your first book, right? I, I know you've written other things prior, 
but as a first pub, like as a book, this is your yep. first published book, right? First time. With that said, then, what did you learn about yourself as you wrote this book? I'm sure there's a huge growing and learning process about yourself as you're writing your very first book. I mean, I don't know if I learned a lot about myself, like as a person necessarily, you know, like on like a really abstract level. But one thing that I learned about the story that I was telling was that, you know, I thought that early on I was saying like when the when the word anti-racist was fairly new to me. So what I, I would have said that like my this was my anti-racism journey, but I realized that I've actually been on a decolonizing journey. Mm. And I didn't really realize that until I was finishing the book, you know, I mean, you've read it. So, you know, where I land near the mm -hmm. end, uh, where, you know, at the beginning, I, I'm I'm trying to convince white people that racism exists. And at the end, I'm reconnecting with my ancestral roots, you know, in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing. And so I guess I guess what I learned, you know, from writing my book is that I have a whole lot more to learn. Mm hmm. That actually really connects into my next question. And obviously, so much of this book is about your journey and experiencing how white people have like are encountering racism or like basically actually more of like their denial of racism and yeah. your experience of people who white people who you thought were friends were really like actually all not not committed to actually being in relationship with you and being in relationship with all of you, including your blackness. But the other side of that is what you just brought out was it does seem like there is this other story that's going on that is you journeying in your blackness and mm -hmm. discovering that about yourself and learning how to re-relate to your blackness. So can you talk a little bit about that story that's happening? That clearly, to me, it's clear in the book, but I don't know if that's clear to everybody who might read it. Right. I mean, that's a really great question, you know, and a really great observation because, you know, the, the, the use of the word white in the title is very distracting for people, you know, like because they think that this book is about white people. You know, mm -hmm. but I really think, you know, some we need to put some respect on the subtitle, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> open, right. open heart pills about fighting for black lives. Right. And so a huge theme in this book is uh, unlearning and learning. What you see is me at the beginning, a patriot, uh, a patriotic black kid who has very much internalized the uh, myths that America tells about itself mm. painfully go through a process of unlearning and learning, right? It is a journey that I invite the white friends I couldn't keep to go on with me mm. and they refuse to go. So you see me choosing to learn and them refusing to learn, me choosing to unlearn and them refusing to unlearn. What I will say, and I think that I cover this probably in the first five chapters of the book, is that Black people and people of color, non-Black people of color, Indigenous people, we are all invited or pressured, I should say. I shouldn't say invited. We're pressured to disassociate with our, our ethnic backgrounds, especially Blackness, mm. right? We are pressured to assimilate into white culture, into dominant culture. And a lot of that has to do with racial gaslighting and all kinds of different, you know, punishments that this dominant society has for us not assimilating, you know. 
And that worked on me to an extent mm. for many years. Yeah. And I there- mean, you have that line even at one point where you said, I'm not black, I'm Jamaican. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. As And I was a kid, you know, I was like in second grade or something right. when I said that, right? So um, all these misconceptions of, of, about that, you know, ruling. And so there comes a point in this journey in the book where I draw a line in the sand and I say, no, I... I'm not going to submit to this. I'm not going to conform to this anymore. I'm not Mm. going to comply with this anymore. And in doing that, you know, I'm able to, or I kind of see the path or the opportunity or the invitation to think about like, what, what what is my identity outside of the confines that whiteness has drawn for black people? The one other thing that I noticed in the book was that personal story of you re-relating or relating differently to your blackness did seem to connect to the historical moment of the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of the emergence of that. It sort of seemed like both were happening kind of at the same time. And so with that said, then you open up the book about the Black Lives Matter movement and specifically you talk about it as like this apocalypse. And a lot of, you know, especially for those of us who grew up in like evangelicalism or were in evangelicalism at one point, like we have a really sort of twisted notion of what apocalypse, what revelation, uh, what the end times actually is. Can you talk a little bit about how the Black Lives Matter movement is an apocalypse? For sure. And I I appreciate this question because I hear, I mean, I see a lot of, you know, post-evangelical folks, ex-evangelical, post-Christian, whatever. They call Revelation a dumb book, (laughs) you know, (laughs) basically. And I felt when this was happening, you know, the events that I write about in the book, like, the book of Revelation was one of the only books that made sense to me in the Bible at the time. It was like mm. the, it was the only thing to read in the Bible, the only thing worth reading in the Bible to me. And not because I had some kind of end times prophecies that I thought were coming, coming true, but because, you know, I've, I've studied theology and my, my understanding of the book of Revelation is that it belongs to a literary genre, you know, called Apocalypse. That was deeply political and uses symbolic imagery to comment about current social issues. And so I don't think that that scroll was ever written to tell us about what the end of human history would be like, Mm. but that you have a scroll from a political prisoner who heard that his friend Antipas was a victim of systemic violence, was killed by the by the systemic violence of Rome, while his compatriots, other oppressed, subjugated people, uh, Jewish Jewish people, were being drawn into the cult of Caesar, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a in a way that I feel like you know is you know is not that you know, yeah it's similar I think to what we saw with you know this worship of Donald Trump you know, and so what John wanted to do was I it seems to me. Uh, intervene against you know this flag waving of his subjugated compatriots you know thinking that they actually have a seat at the table in rome uh through pledging allegiance to caesar even worshiping caesar and um 
that's what apocalypses are meant to do. They're meant to unveil the fact that this imperial ideology of Pax Romana is a lie. Mm. Caesar is not a hero, not a handsome god. He's a monster. In in the chapter before, I'm alluding to Revelation 13, but in Revelation 12, you see like this dragon that breathes life into or summons, you know, the the Roman Empire from the sea, the beast of the sea. And so like John is saying, like, yeah, this this imperial system is demonic, it's satanic, you know, all of those things during the time that I was watching folks like Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and and them die and and the rise of Donald Trump's presidency and this justification of all the systemic racism and gaslighting. It just felt so relevant. And it seemed like we needed that kind of literary intervention. And so mm-hmm. that that idea of the the Black Lives Matter movement unveiling the ugly history of America, the monster, the political monsters and and the truth about America's imperial ideology that Pax Americanus is really a cover up for, you know, the true history of America, which is racist violence, just seems so relevant mm-hmm. and like a perfect frame for the book. Mm-hmm. One of the most poignant sections I, I found in the book was early on, and you talk about Black anger. And mm-hmm. there's obviously so much politi- politicization around Black anger. And what I loved about it was you just talk about the beauty and the the effectiveness of Black anger. So can you talk a little bit about like why Black anger is so beautiful and necessary for these kind of movements? Yeah, you know, part of that is because I, I've been talking about how anger is a part of the technology of our bodies that tells us that a boundary has been crossed, tells mm. us that something's not right. I don't like this. I shouldn't be treated this way. You know, things are out of whack in some degree. What white supremacy wants for us to do is to get into our executive brain, our rational brain, because that's where you can rationalize these things away. But the body communicates insight it can it, like abraham heschel says that uh i think he said intuition is knowledge at first sight mm. right and so like our bodies have that knowledge our bodies speak to us much quicker than our mm-hmm. so-called rational brain right and so white supremacy wants to like hey why don't we debate about whether racism exists or not yeah but your body's already telling that you've experienced it mm. right and so i i bring all that up to say that like there is this gaslighting tactic that white people have where they want to gaslight us about the the validity of our anger you know treat anger like treat black rage as though it is not warranted as though it is uh, unreasonable mm-hmm. you know when you live in a society that was literally built on the premise that you are not a human like everyone else and continues to uphold that idea in you know you know uh the economic in, uh, inequity, the racial wealth gap, that kind of stuff, right? Um, and the spectacles of Black death, like police brutality and all that kind of stuff. This is, this is, this is valid, mm-hmm. right? First off, if your body weren't telling you that something was wrong, then we'd have to ask what is, you know, then that would be a sign that something is not working correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's a healthy response. It's a reasonable mm-hmm. response. And when we allow ourselves to do that, we are allowing ourselves to be fully human because it is a fully human emotion. And we also are leaning into the path toward liberation because on the other side of our anger is a vision of tomorrow is what I argue in the book. Because if your body is telling you that things ought not be this way, that means that you probably hold some idea. That means you probably hold some idea of how 
things ought to be. And if we lean into that, then we can follow that, you know, toward, you know, building that uh, that movement for freedom that we need. And honestly, the way that white people try to keep us from expressing our anger, acting our anger, admitting, acknowledging our anger is just another way that I feel that they are trying to keep us from organizing for our freedom. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable to think that even so many white Christians think of anger as this like negative emotion when it's literally all throughout scripture. You see so many moments throughout scripture where either God or Jesus or even prophets or whoever it is, like so many different characters throughout the Bible are justified in their anger. And it's actually seen by God as a good thing. So it's just unbelievable the way that they compartmentalize, white white Christians compartmentalize that with the biblical, uh, biblical history and the biblical stories. Oh, yeah. And white rage is totally acceptable if someone right. steps on your property, you know, like, the whole work, you know, no, you know, we don't we don't argue. I mean, a lot of Christians don't argue that, you know, you can't shoot someone who steps on your property or that, you know, uh, America shouldn't have gone and bombed Iraq after 9-11 and all this kind of stuff like these these instances, these instances where white people seem to be very committed to that idea that anger is a bad idea. Not saying that they're not, you know, on the individual level and with one another, but they seem especially committed to it when we start talking about Black people being fed up with anti-Black violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I've loved about your work for so long is the way that you think about and articulate and even do nonviolence. It's such a really, really important part. It's, it's essential to your work. Obviously, often white people will pit anger against nonviolence. Yeah. But you're someone, obviously, again, who is committed to nonviolent action. So how is it that anger specifically can actually fuel or even catalyze nonviolent action? Or maybe in a different way to think about it is what would anger integrated with nonviolent action look like? Yeah, you know. Gandhi says something really interesting. He, he says a couple of things that are pretty interesting. Actually. <laughs> um, one thing is that um, Gandhi said that, first off, if the choice is between inaction against injustice and violence, then violence is the better choice. Right. Mm. So that's that's one thing that a lot of people don't I, I think people don't don't understand. So when we talk about nonviolent action, we're talking about an active method of struggle. If you haven't been trained in it, if you don't know it, you know, and you don't know an alternative, but the choice but the choices are submit to your oppression or respond with force, then responding with force is a better thing that Gandhi said. And the other thing they said that I thought was really interesting is that that he said that he could take a violent man and train him to be nonviolent, you know. But he just couldn't. The thing that he can't work with is a coward. Right. Mm. So all that to say that I think that we conflate anger and violence and all that kind of stuff. But all of that is basically like passion and it's dealing kind of with what our most natural responses are, which is to fight to the death, you know, against um, against someone killing us. Mm -hmm. Right. And. Gandhi, one of the you know premier strategists of nonviolence uh, of nonviolent struggle, civil resistance in history, is identifying that you know they're not incompatible. <laughs> you know, it's just a force that you that you redirect. Even Dr. King said this. You know, when he said that like the the reason why the the black uh, insurgents of the civil rights movement were standing up is because they were fed up. They were fed up, 
And so anger is this impulse. It is energy. It gets us active. It gets us out into the streets. Uh, we should never think that just because people choose not to use weapons, which is the essence of nonviolent civil resistance, mm -hmm. that they are not angry and that they don't express anger. No, like mm -hmm. nonviolent struggle can be the organized, livid response of ordinary, organized, outraged people. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of my experience when I was in Minneapolis and obviously after George Floyd was killed and to be a part of some of these movements that were happening and to see what so many, even like the white suburban people of the Twin Cities were calling violence of, you know, going into Target and taking different supplies and taking different things and uh, going into grocery stores or whatever. But then to go to the actual protest sites and to see the like diapers and food and all these different things that have been taken from Target and and from grocery stores were actually being used and distributed to people who like needed it. It's like, yeah, I, I just like it's still like I'm trying to wrap my mind around the way that somebody could describe that action as violence just because they don't like it. But but like to think that like so many people benefited materially, like they were actually getting their needs met from the action that protesters were taking um, was just unbelievable. And uh, like, I don't know what else somebody would want them to do. Right. Right. I mean, it part of it is like. It, it 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 exemplifies our common sense, right? Like what narratives exist in our culture that tell us that some people are unworthy mm. of having their material needs met, right? Or that corporations, buildings, property is more valuable than certain lives, mm. right? I remember that season and I I don't put myself forward as some example of faith and and power and or whatever you know what i mean but but as i was seeing the way that people talked about those things the way that christians talked about those things i thought about the exodus story and how man i have never <laughs> i've never done anything as radical as yahweh in the, yeah. when yahweh is is confronting the systemic oppression of the israelites in that story you know and that's why I tweeted during that during that time. Like, I don't know. It seems like the guy that I see in that story would burn all the targets down to the ground right. if it would some oppressed people free. <laughs> no, which some people were not were not happy about. But I mean, for me, you know, and this is why I talk about apocalypse, right? Is that apocalypse reveals, you know, those things that we would rather not see about the world, right? Like mm -hmm. we have to ask questions about the land that these that these things are built on, right? And mm -hmm of some of these corporations and businesses and organizations. And I'm not saying that Target has any ties to the slave trade, you know, but, you know, we know that we can trace the roots of some contemporary, you know, business corporations that we can trace them all the way back to the slave trade. Even some religious institutions, Southern oh, Baptist yeah. Convention. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so we do have to, we do have to talk more seriously. And I think in a more nuanced way, about violence, because, you know, what does what does that mean in a country that was built on land theft and genocide and enslavement? Mm -hmm. Right. And we're and people are never counting, you know, the violence that founded and continues to structure this society when they start talking about how the how the oppressed, you know, stand up to it. Mm hmm. 
You have another great section in your book, and actually specifically a line that I really love, where you basically just say it straight out that the personal is political. Yeah. Uh, so how is the personal political? And then I've got a little bit of a follow-up question to that. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, this this concept comes out of feminist liberation, I mean, women's liberation movements. And so, you know, I can't take credit for coining the phrase. Um, but when I was learning about it, it was very important for me to understand because I couldn't see how personal problems are actually connected to systemic problems. And that's what it means to me, or at least one aspect of what it means to me, is that sometimes what we assume, and by no accident on the parts of the power, power on, on the part of the powers that be, because they 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 create an atmosphere that maintains this lie, is that personal suffering is the result of personal decisions and personal choices. Mm. But um, personal suffering can definitely be. Is felt political uh, structures create conditions for personal suffering, mm. you know, and so like an unhoused person might be living on the street because of the fact that you know uh, the 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 minimum wage is so low and the price of living is so high, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that person doesn't really have control over. And we can all say, you know, anyone can say, well, you just Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and play the game, mm -hmm. you know. But when you start really looking at the game, you see that the game is actually rigged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Goodness. I mean, so in Finland, they at some point had reduced the unhoused population to 50%. And they did this just by giving people houses and <laughs> giving them mm -hmm. homes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, houses. But they gave them a, a stable place to live. And what they found was, yeah, it's a lot easier to look for a job. If you don't have to figure out like where you're going to sleep tonight, right? <laughs> because mm -hmm. obviously, if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight, that's going to be priority number one. So every right. day, you know what I mean. And so these are just some ways that that we don't look at the ways, or we're taught. I feel like we're trained not to look at the ways that people's personal suffering or the situation that they're in in life is connected to the way that our society is actually structured, and the stories that we tell to keep those structures in place. Mm -hmm. It also seems that kind of on the inverse for white people, and again, you talk about this all throughout your book, that the personal is not always political for them. Like there were plenty of white people who are in personal relationship with you, but that did not necessarily entail some sort of political nature to your relationship. In fact, once the political nature became apparent, that's where either you or whoever would decide, you know what, I can't be in personal relationship with this person anymore. Yeah, I, I mentioned in the book that I think that perhaps the white friends that I couldn't keep kept me around because I, because I did serve a political function in their group, mm. but not one that was explicit and maybe not one that they intended for me to play. But, you know, in some ways, I think that my presence proved that they were open-minded, modern, maybe even cosmopolitan people, right? Right. Uh, maybe, right? And, you know, my role was to be the contented Negro presence, you know, mm. in their white space. But then once I started speaking up about, about what my life is actually like and what the lives of many Black people are actually like in this country, then they started defending that that political space, you know, which I also don't think they thought of it in that way. But I write about this, about how white people are in a 
sense creating a a safe space for whiteness when they gather and they are committed to keeping a safe space for whiteness when they gather often mm-hmm. it's inherently political mm-hmm. this episode of a people's theology is brought to you by united theological seminary of the twin cities are you considering exploring your faith more deeply or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. In the middle of the book, you have this really interesting quote. It's this really great statistic that I think I maybe have heard of before, but I'd love to to unflesh it a little bit more. Um, But you say 3.5% of, or this is a statistic, so it's not necessarily right. you saying it, but you say 3.5% of a population in sustained nonviolent struggle has consistently proven to be enough to topple dictators and revolutionize a society. Yep. And you quote that in the context that racists don't need to be debated. And so yep. what I'm kind of curious about then, what does it look like to get us to that 3.5%? What does that look like? I, I know that's a big question, but yeah. uh, in, in the best way you can answer it. Yeah. What does it look like for us to just get to the 3.5 that we don't need to get to the 50% or whatever it might be? Right. So the three and a half percent is about active nonviolent civil resistance. So that would be people planning and executing strategic, nonviolent civil resistance campaigns that really do disrupt the flow of racist power in our society. And the way that we get to that three and a half percent, I mean, or a way, I should say, because it's not, I mean, it's a small percentage, but it's a big number of people. Yes. And it's not, I don't think that we need to think of it as everyone necessarily working in concert at the same time. And obviously this comes from the work of Erica Chenoweth. I can't fail to say that. So people should read her work. She has uh, a recent book called Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know, mm. where she goes deeper into the three and a half percent rule because the three and a half percent rule has been popularized. And I think people make it very simple. So anyway, what I would say is that this, I think, would happen with many different groups on their local level putting pressure on the system Mm. over a period over years (laughs) because if you have boycotts and strikes and stay-at-homes and die-ins and marches and blockades and all this kind of stuff happening every week all over america over the course of a few years or even a year. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. It, it, I mean, when I read Gene Sharp's work from from dictatorship to democracy, there were dictatorships that crumbled in as little as 
two weeks. So, mm. I mean, <laughs> you just don't know. But if you got, I think that's how you get to that level, though. It's not a centralized thing where there's like a headquarters in Virginia or Houston or something and they're giving orders to 12 million Americans, but rather, there are people, there are cells of people all over the country that are committed to disrupting the flow of racist power in American society nonviolently, you know, until, mm-hmm. uh, until the victory is won. Mm-hmm. That's like the thing that, again, felt so deflating um, in Minneapolis was, you know, right, you know, within months after George Floyd was murdered, it felt like there was this fervor, there was this energy where you did see all these cells of different people doing all this different kind of work. And then it just like, for whatever reason, just kind of like it it didn't sustain itself to the point where at one moment it felt like maybe the police would actually get defunded and or abolished in Minneapolis. And then it failed like a year or so later. But for a moment, it felt like there was so much energy around it. So I think that like sustained piece that you're talking about really is critical to actually creating that revolution. It does need to be sustained. And the way that it's sustained is structure and strategy, you know? And so what we're dealing with is a faulty theory of change that if we just get millions of people out millions of people out into the streets all chanting the same things then you know the progress will just fall from the sky like like the rain at the end of the lion king you know <laughs> over pride rock again and mufasa will come back from the dead and rule us again right like but that's not how it works actually and so that is a part of the thing that we're dealing with and it and also that i think that some people Um, So first off, let me just say the optimism is wonderful and it's needed. Like the optimism that that this is the moment or this could be the moment that everything changes, that is something you can't manufacture, you can't contrive, you know, Mm -hmm. and that is useful for change. It's it's so great when it's there. It's like the wind, you know, for Mm -hmm. a sailboat or something like that, you know. And that passion, that drive, that energy, so necessary, so helpful. But without strategy and without some enough structure, what happens is what we saw. It, it fizzles out, you mm-hmm. know? And so like the Montgomery bus boycott in Montgomery <laughs> in, uh, the, in, during the civil rights movement, you know, that was not some spontaneous reaction to... Mm-hmm to, you know, uh, Rosa Parks experiencing discrimination on the bus. That was carefully planned. It was not the first or only bus boycott during the civil rights movement. It was, mm-hmm. uh, there was one in Albany, there was one in Tallahassee before then. And what they did was they learned. They learned from previous bus boycotts that did not yield the results that they wanted. And it was it was very strategically planned and it was sustained over 13 months. Mm-hmm. And while they were bo- boycotting the buses, people were, you know, they organized a carpool to get people where they needed to go. They organized ways to replace people's shoes. That's how you sustain it. Remember, they started that in the winter. They started that in the, in December in, in Alabama, which gets cold, you mm-hmm. know? Sometimes there's snow on the ground in the South, you know, in December and all that kind of stuff. You're not able to sustain an action like that for a whole year on passion and energy alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely needs to be some level of structure that's really guiding the course of that action. 
You know, this is a theology podcast, so I, I feel like I would feel the podcast if I didn't ask this question. But what does it look like to break up with white Jesus? And maybe before <laughs> answering that, can you describe what do you mean by white Jesus? When I say white Jesus, I'm talking about the Jesus that is assumed by the colonizers and their descendants that Jesus is beholden to white people's interests and is interest mm. in the, interested in the project of preserving, expanding, strengthening white supremacy, which is the version of Jesus that the colonizers presented in order to weaponize and utilize to build their global system of racial violence, right? And, you know, we see these depictions of Jesus. I mean, in America, we have them of like Jesus writing the American constitution. No, that that is not, mm-hmm. that is not what it is. And so what I learned, you know, in my, in my story, in my journey, I think, is that many white Christians especially white evangelical Christians, imagine that God, that Jesus is just a larger version of themselves. Jesus Mm. is a middle-class white American that wants middle-class white American stuff. Jesus is not, it's not a priority to this Jesus to save any black people from the police officer's chokehold or bullet or, or the charge of being suspicious. But this Jesus is committed to, uh, (laughs) is more committed to helping white people find good parking spots at Walmart than saving any black lives. And, you know, that's what I mean when I talk about white Jesus. You know, I, I have talked about this many times and I'm I'm feeling free to talk about it now just because I don't think I'll ever get to do it. But if I could, I would make a horror story where white Jesus is the villain and white Jesus would go around killing people <laughs> because in evangelical theology, Jesus cares much more about your soul than your body. And so if you are in material danger, it would be in white mm. Jesus' interest to kill you himself because he wants your soul. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that, you know, that that is that is what I'm talking about when I talk about white Jesus. And breaking up with white Jesus, I think has to do with, you know, leaving the religion that is propagated in his name. You know, the religion that says, Mm. you know, that uh, what is really important here is the soul and not the body. The the religion that says that black, that racism is not a priority to God, which is what one pastor looked me in the eye and said. The the religion that says that it is a sin to organize and rise up against your oppressors. Those are just colonial Mm. lies dressed up in religious Mm -hmm. rhetoric you know, in theological language. So I think alternatively, you know, people can look to spiritualities that center liberation. They can look to ancestral traditions, um, indigenous wisdom, all that kind of thing. You know, I'm, I'm not the theology police. I really hope that there's not a hell that, you know, God will send me to for thinking this or saying it out loud, but I, that's the best that I can come up with with my with my brain is that clearly I can't submit to a religion that tells me that it would be legitimate or justifiable for me to be somebody's property or punching bag. So we've got to look for mm-hmm. something else. I've definitely talked about in the past that for, especially for white people leaving white evangelicalism, that it's really important for for those folks to think of it as an act of repentance. And, mm. you know, even beyond that, there are other steps for 
retribution and for reparations and everything. But but the, that initial step of actually leaving white evangelicalism, I think it's really important for a lot of those folks, whether it's ex-evangelical, post-evangelical, whatever you want to call yourself, to really yeah. think of it as an act of repentance, I think is really important. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with you. When I was evangelical, I thought that there was a chance that there would be some kind of mass repentance from this complicity in systemic racism within that tradition. And then just the mm. more that I learned about it was the more that I learned that maybe that just is not an option, seeing as how, in my view, evangelicalism was born on the back of right. a slave receipt written by Jonathan Edwards. So <laughs> mm -hmm. it's kind of in the mortar there. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the book is titled uh, the, To the White Friends, uh, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And mm -hmm. with that said, so you, you, you talk a little bit uh, all throughout the book about the white friends you couldn't keep, but I'm sure there are yeah. some white friends that you did keep throughout this entire oh. journey. And I am curious, you know, for, for the white listeners of this podcast, they might be wondering, well, what does it take to be a white friend that can be kept? So in your experience for the white friends that did stay around, that you were able to keep, what were they doing? What were they saying? What did it look like for you to be able to keep them throughout this entire journey? Yeah, you know, I write about this in the chapter called White Men Explain Things to Me, right? I think... I think it was that one in How to Be Hopeful, you know, where I write about the white friends that I met in the movement, you know, and some of them were problematic. I couldn't keep some of them either, but some of them were not. You know, we shared the same values and we were working side by side to fight, you know, white supremacy. And I think, you know, eventually I just did get to the point where I said, like, that's what it takes for us to be friends is that you have to be actively invested in fighting this system or at least you know, willing to reflect on your actions, your your behaviors, the way that you talk, and to address the ways, you know, that you might have internalized um, anti-Black ideas and be working on that. Second and last question, how do you hope all the white friends I couldn't keep can inspire and liberate its readers? Well, you know, I got inspired to start learning about nonviolent struggle and telling everyone that I could from reading a book called Blueprint for Revolution by my friend Serge Popovich, who started the activist group that overthrew the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. And I remember feeling so hopeful and so empowered after reading that book that, I mean, i in, in many ways, it, it helped me to write this one, you know, because it put me on that path to mm. feel like I could actually fight for Black freedom. And I'm hoping that this book will inspire others in a similar way, that they will close the book and walk away with hopefully way more than Andre's a good writer or what a good story or that was a nice book or gosh, those those people were awful, you know, like. The story is there to bring people into the larger mm. story of race and racism and the possibility of social progress. And so I'm hoping that people will leave with things like you mentioned, the, the three and a half percent rule, the spectrum of support, the um, the statistics around nonviolent struggle, mm. the, the power of 
of polarization, the truth about unity, you know, all of those things. I hope that people will leave with those things and, and feel like they can actually make a difference in the world if they get around the right people and organize. And I'm hoping that it will help strengthen movements, you know, that movements, that this will be a part of what some activists and organizers and ordinary people will read and, and that it will be an on-ramp to them to read more and to study more about strategic nonviolent struggle and that we'll see more strategic movements hopefully in part and hopefully my book will play a little part in that last question andre how can listeners get connected to you and your and your work oh yeah so the best way would be to visit my website andrehenry.co all of my social media is linked there i have a web uh sorry a newsletter that i send out um about nonviolent struggle and anti-racism as well as you know any updates on anything i'm working on songs podcast episodes all that kind of thing yeah that'd be a bit that'd be it wonderful uh where can we listen to your music you write incredible music where, where can we listen to it thank you yeah anywhere music is streaming you know spotify apple music title all that stuff youtube all that stuff Lovely, lovely. Well, thank you so much again, Andre, for chatting a little bit more about your book. Uh, I, again, you're, you're somebody who we've known each other for a few years now, and I've always really looked up to you and the way that you engage this work. And uh, you're, you're definitely, in terms of like how I want to think through like nonviolent action and everything, like you're probably my go-to person. Uh, I, I've always been really inspired um, by your thoughts around that. Uh, and you've really helped garner and, and create uh, kind of a, a way for me to think about nonviolent action in really, um, really great ways. And so uh, thank you again for chatting a little bit about the book. And uh, I, I really hope the, that it uh, continues to inspire and liberate its readers. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. But if you're not gonna preach on then I'm not gonna listen. No I I'm just speaking my truth. If you would like to connect with Andre and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Waking up for church this Sunday.